become misfortune. <laughs> I'm watching you. Hey guys, welcome to episode 35 of Macabre Misfortunes. Hello, everybody. Tradace, Tradacy. <laughs> Let me try that again. Tradacy. Tracy, today, our story is a little bit longer than, than what we normally do on Saturday, but okay. it's an interesting story to say the least. It's a little on the gross side at times, but... Today, we're going to talk about a fascinating unsolved case from the 1930s in Cleveland, Ohio. And this is actually our third story that we've covered on Macabre Misfortunes from Cleveland. Out of 35, we've covered three What's stories going on from in Cleveland. Cleveland. It looks like a lot, huh? Because <laughs> we did the, uh, the x ray fire at the Mayo Clinic. Yes. I said the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic. I know it would make that. sense since yeah. it's in Cleveland. I know. But we did that one, and we did the Cleveland Strangler, where we the had the young Cleveland lady on who who wrote Strangler. the letters to him after he got yes, in jail. Yes, that's so interesting. And you know, watching the Dahmer episodes to where he was getting all that fan mail, it made me immediately think about that. And made me sick to my stomach. The bill. I mean, dude, what is wrong with these people? So today's subject is the Kingsbury Run Murders, or, as it's more commonly known, the Cleveland Torso Murders. They only murdered their torso? (laughs) How'd that work? You'll see. All right. So between 1935 and 1938, a serial killer actually murdered and dismembered at least 12 victims. They think it's 13. Oh, geez. Only two were positively identified. There was one that was unofficially identified but we'll get to that now i said that this case is unsolved and that's officially unsolved but researchers feel like that they're pretty certain who the killer is okay unfortunately i don't have that name i've got a name that i i don't have a name i'm not even gonna lie to you so I looked everywhere to see who this person was. So it was like they thought they knew who it was. Elliot Ness, who was in charge. And you probably know that name from oh, the definitely. Detective Souls. Yeah. But Elliot Ness thought he knew who it was, but he never released that name. Because they couldn't prove it. So it's a screwed up case. That sounds like it's messed up. So during the 1930s, Cleveland was uh, really on the rise population wise. Many of these new residents were immigrant workers in the steel and the manufacturing industries. But in this growing city, one of the most gruesome serial killers of all time was carrying out his acts of horror. Over the course of four years, 13 people were brutally murdered. Many were decapitated, and most while they were still alive. That is awful. Don't be decapitating people unless it's a damn vampire. Don't get it twisted. (laughs) 
the murders ended as abruptly as they began. Now, at this time, safety director, somebody you've probably heard of, Elliot Ness, claimed to have solved the crimes, but no suspect was ever brought to the trial or even named for that matter. So that's what I was saying. He thinks he knows who did it, but he didn't feel like he had enough evidence to be able to prove it. And you'll see why in a little bit, but he was never even able to arrest him, but he feels like he's positive who was doing it. And that's awful. All this time and nobody's ever been charged with this. No. So these murders happened in Kingsbury Run. Now that's a section of Cleveland that run from the Flats, which is an area along uh, Cuyahoga River near Lake Erie, and it went to East 90th Street. This whole area is a prehistoric riverbed. Okay. There's a lot of train tracks and stuff in that area mm-hmm. back then and still today. Now, this area is bordered on the north side by Woodland Avenue and by Broadway on the south. But back in the 1930s, as you could imagine, Kingsbury Run was a dark, dreary, and dangerous place to live. And well, it doesn't look like a place I'd want to hang out at for sure. In fact, the Great Depression actually made a lot of people homeless in the area. Mm-hmm. And they lived there on the streets in appalling conditions. They had their little shanties and their shacks and tents set up. And they were just living wherever they could. But the place was filled with trash and filth everywhere. And it was nicknamed the Hobo Jungle. That's heartbreaking. It is. These people, many of them were transients. They would ride the trains that were often in the area to get away from Cleveland during its uh, brutal winter times, which oh if you've God, ever been on, yeah, on Lake, Lake Erie, Erie with, with the wind blowing, wind. Oh my gosh. yeah, it's crazy. All right. The area just to the east of the flats was called the Roaring Third Police Precinct. Now, it had plenty of bars, brothels, flop houses, and illegal gambling. So, yep. so more like, seedy places. Right, right. But a lot more fun than where these people were <laughs> yes. living. This is where the most notorious murder case, the Cleveland Torso case, would take place. All right, so let's get into the gruesome details. We have to. Yeah, it won't get that that bad. September 1934, a young man found the remains of a woman in her mid-30s, or should I say her torso. The thighs were still attached, but her legs had been amputated at the knees. It had been washed up on the shores of Lake Erie. Mm. The Cuyahoga County coroner, A.J. Pierce, he noticed that there was some type of a chemical preservative on the skin that turned it red, tough, and leathery. That wouldn't be from the water, I guess? No. They did find a few of the other body parts, but the head was never found. She would eventually be known as the Lady in the Lake. It's important to note that this victim wasn't officially listed as a victim of these serial killings until two years later. And I think that's where the whole 12 to 13 comes in. So when they were originally looking at this stuff, but this went on for four years. So September 1935, two teenage boys discovered a decapitated and emasculated corpse of a white male at the base of Jackass Hill. First of all, what the name of a street? The Jackass Hill? Yeah. Hmm. The body was naked except for socks. It's It was drained of all of its blood and had rope burns on both wrists. Can you imagine kids finding something like that, how traumatizing that is? It definitely would be traumatizing. The death was caused by decapitation. 
Now, this body was identified from fingerprints as Edward Androssi. He was a 28-year-old who frequented the Roaring Third Area. Mm-hmm. Police discovered a second body nearby, also decapitated and emasculated. It had the same chemical on it that was found on the Lady in the Lake. Now, this was an approximate 40-year-old male, and he had been dead for a few weeks, and no ID was made on him. Jump to January 1936. A woman discovered parts of a woman. Her body was neatly wrapped in newspaper and packed in two half-bushel baskets. These baskets were left along the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue. The rest of the remains, minus the head, were found 10 days later in a vacant lot on Orange Avenue. So none of these heads were ever found? No, some of them were. Some of them were. You'll see as we get into the stories that some of them say that the head's washed up. Or... The cause of death on that body? Decapitation. Which means that that's how they actually died. It wasn't done after the fact. The killer then waited for rigor mortis to set in before dismembering the rest of the body. It's amazing that they can tell that kind of stuff from a dead body, what was cut off beforehand and what was cut off after. This was the only other victim that was officially ID'd. Uh, They were able to get fingerprints and they proved that this was Florence Palillo. She was a waitress and a barmaid. June 1936, two young boys found the head of a white male wrapped in a pair of pants that was close to the 5th Street Bridge. The next day, police found the body of the same man. He was in his 20s and he was dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. He was clean and drained of all blood. His corpse was intact except for the severed head that they found before. So I don't know why he didn't do what he was doing with his other bodies, but he was never ID'd, of course. He did they did make a plastic bust of his head, and a hundred thousand people saw it at the Great Lake Exposition, which I think was a World's Fair. Because that's what they were calling World's Fair. Yeah. I guess they were trying to figure out who it was, so they made a bust of him and said, Hey, who knows who this is? But Oh, that bust, by the way, is now at the Cleveland Police Museum. All right, so we're going to kind of breeze through the rest of these. July 1936, the decapitated remains of a 40-year-old white male was found. He had been dead for two months. His head and his bloody clothes was found near Clinton Road. In September 1936, a man tripped over the upper half of a man's torso while trying to hop on a train. Police found the lower half and parts of both of his legs in a big open sewer. This is a terrible story. Can we hurry up and get through this? He was in his late 20s and again decapitated was the cause of death. All right, so let's take a quick sponsor break and we'll pick right up where we left. All right, so now we've got six murders. And of course... A media frenzy is starting to happen. Well, I'm sure. The mayor was under a lot of pressure, and the public wanted answers. 
So Mayor Harold Burton appointed Safety Director Elliot Ness to get more involved with the case. The coroner called for a special meeting with himself, police, and experts to discuss information so they could create a profile of who they were exactly looking for. It's like watching, uh, what's that, Criminal Minds. Mm -hmm. The police department put Detective Peter Murillo and Martin Zalewski on the case full-time, which I imagine was probably unusual back then, to just take two people and say, this is the only case you're working. Right, right. So these two officers went undercover in the seedy underbelly of the city. Sounds deep. They interviewed more than 1,500 people. Wow. It was the biggest police investigation in Cleveland to that point in history. In November, the mayor was reelected, but the coroner, Pierce, was replaced by a gentleman by the name of Sam Gerber. Now, Gerber was young and hungry. He had a fierce dedication to medicine and He had a law degree. So this actually put him right in the forefront of this investigation. I bet that mayor wished he hadn't been (laughs) reelected. Probably so. So even though they got this new group now in charge, the killings continued. February 1937, half of a woman's torso washed up on the shore. This time, though, the death was not by decapitation. That happened after she was already dead. So she was decapitated, but that wasn't what caused the death. The other half washed up about three months later, and she was in her mid-twenties, and that's all they know about her. Because remember, none of these people were identified. Mm. June 1937, a human skull was found under the the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. A burlap bag was next to it, and it had skeletal remains of what turned out to be a petite 40-year-old black woman. Now, they believe this was Rose Wallace but they couldn't completely confirm it. They did, they were able to tell, they think it was her by her dental work. Oh, but when that they, still blows my mind. But when they started following up on leads and everything, they couldn't prove anything. But they're almost positive that's who it was. Mm-hmm. July 1937, there was some labor problems in the flats, so the National Guard was called in to kind of keep order. Yeah. One of the young guardsmen that was standing watch by the West 3rd Street Bridge, he saw the first piece of victim number nine. It was in the wake of a passing tugboat. So little waves and stuff after the boat goes by and he could see it kind of floating. The abdomen had been gutted and the heart had been ripped out. This was a new element for the killer. April 1938, a young laborer on his way to work in the flats He found what he thought was a dead fish in the river. It turned out to be a woman's leg. Oh, jeez. So even, so if something happened, they left their, say, their hands and their arms on. If they'd been in the river after a long, long time, are they still able to to lift a fingerprint or does that being in the water? I would say in some cases they can, but the problem is, unless you've been in the system before, they probably don't have your fingerprints on file. Well, that's true. So, I mean, if somebody found your hand, Mm -hmm. you've never been in jail. You've never been fingerprinted for anything. Right. So, they probably wouldn't be able to tell who you were by your hand. There's no other way, though, then. I mean, today they could use DNA evidence. Yeah, yeah. But back then, that was the 30s, they didn't have that. So, anyway, they found that leg. 
the rest of her was found in two burlap bags a month later, also in the river. August 16, 1938, three scrap collectors were digging through the dump and they found a torso of a woman wrapped in a man's blue double-breasted jacket and again in a quilt. So that was wrapped up in a quilt. Police actually found the remains of another body close by. Both had appeared to be refrigerated at one point. Good Lord. They have to find out who's been buying all those burlap sacks. I imagine they were pretty common in the 30s. Well, yeah, like I say, it probably was. Now, here's the thing. These two bodies were actually placed in a location that was in plain view from Elliot Ness's office window, almost as if they were taunting him. Ooh, that's a ballsy person. August 18th, 12.40 a.m., Elliot Ness and a group of 35 police officers and detectives, they raided the hobo jungle. 11 squad cars, two vans, and three fire trucks descended on the area. They gathered up 63 men and took them in for questioning. The next move, they checked every living structure that was there in the hobo jungle. I was going to say, do do they think it was somebody that was living there that's doing all this? Well, they were running out of options, so that's kind of where they were at. The next move... They burned all of the shanties and the shacks to the ground. And Ness was, as you can imagine, heavily criticized for doing that. Oh, I'm sure. These were those people's homes. Yeah, yeah. July 1939, County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested 52-year-old bricklayer Frank DeLiesel for the murder of Flo Palillo. Remember, she was the second one uh, Mm -hmm. that was actually uh, ID'd. He had lived with her for a while. It was an ex-boyfriend. Researchers turned a research turned up that he was also acquainted with Edward Androssi, who was the first victim they identified, and Rose Wallace, who was the one that they think they identified by the dental records. His confession, though, turned out to be a bewildered blend of incoherent babble and some really neat, precise details, almost as if he had been coached as to what to say. Before he went to trial, though, DeLiso was found dead in his jail cell. Was this shady? Of course it was. He was five foot eight, and he had hung himself from a hook that was only five foot seven off the ground. Not saying it can't be done, right? But it would be tough. Yeah. He also had six broken ribs, all of which had happened while he was in custody. Hmm. To this day, no one thanks Frank was the torso killer. And if that's the case, then who was the killer? One thing is clear, Elliot Ness had a suspect who he believed was the killer. The suspect continued to taunt Ness for years after the killing stopped. All official police reports on this case have either been lost, destroyed, or removed. Get out of here. So, that's the story. So, he kept trying to investigate him even... Along after? I don't think, I don't, I'm sure he probably did, but he never could prove anything. But he always felt like he knew who the murderer yeah. was, but he couldn't get nothing on him. Wow, that's unbelievable. So normally I got some kind of a a strange fact on the case, but I didn't really add it. I figured the strange fact was kind of the fact that he kept being taunted for years after the murder yeah. stopped. Yeah. Well. 
whoever it was will get his in the end. So it's just a shame that probably already did since well, this was 1930s. Well, no, I'm yeah. But. So he'd have to be in his 90s if he was killing people at a year old. Mm-hmm. And that's doubtful. Hmm. You never know. So, all right, guys, we appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. We hope Thank you enjoyed. You all.